0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, October 6th. We begin with a look at the topic of daylight saving time, as it will be a choice on the ballot in the upcoming civic election. We speak with a professor of psychology who tells us why he thinks the idea of changing our clocks permanently to DST would be a bad idea and could negatively impact our health.
1: Next, it's another edition of Ask the Doctor with Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist with the University of Calgary. As always, Dr. Janney takes the time to answer COVID-19 questions as submitted by you, the listeners. Is your business prepared for a cyber attack? We hear details
0: on a new survey from the Insurance Bureau of Canada that indicates many businesses have some work to do in order to safeguard their assets from cyber criminals.
1: And finally, the pandemic has been particularly hard on teens and young adults. So we speak with Kaya Kerr, General Manager of YMCA Calgary, for some details on a new program they have called Why Mind. It aims to help youth better cope with stress and anxiety during this tumultuous time.
0: Daylight Saving Time is one of the questions on the ballots this fall, but what is the impact of Daylight Saving on our health? Joining us to help get to the bottom of some of these questions is Michael Antle, Professor, Psychology Department at the University of Calgary. Good morning to you, Professor. Good morning. Well, let's let's break this down here. We've heard the term circadian rhythms. Let's talk about the importance of circadian rhythms when we talk about time change. What are we talking about?
2: So uh, we all have a circadian clock in our brain that tracks daylight, and this clock times all of our behavior, like when we wake up, when we go to sleep, when we want to have meals, and it controls all the other physiology that goes on in, in your body to make sure it all happens at the right time. And with the time change, I guess what we're thinking about now is our clock is going to follow the sun, and it can't. Can't help but do that you know that's the biology of the situation and the problem comes when we change our clocks we force ourselves to start behaving at a time of the day that our clock is saying no you should really be in bed and so that's what we're going to see actually if we move to permanent uh daylight saving time in the winter is our dawn is so late so in calgary it's going to be uh, nine thirty in december and our bodies uh want to not get up uh until around dawn but our boss of course wants us you know at our desk at 8 a.m. and that's going to cause a conflict it's going to have sleepy workers sleepy students sleepy drivers causing accidents
1: so i think it's just it's confusing to everybody the fact that this is going to be on the plebiscite during the municipal election and it's kind of a yes no question and i, I for one am quite confused about what they're asking exactly exactly
2: Right, yeah. And really, the best way to have done this would be to have two questions. The first is, do you want to do away with the clock change? And people like me have been advocating to get rid of these clock changes for years. And so it kind of kills me that actually I'm advocating to to keep the clock changes right now because – The second question is, if we get rid of the clock changes, what time do we stick with? Standard time, which is more natural and sort of matches our body rhythm, or daylight time, which is actually the only option on the ballot. So the ballot's asking, do we want to do away with with the clock change and stick with daylight time, which is summer hours year-round? And so the choices are status quo clock changes, or uh, daylight time year-round, which nobody in Alberta has experience with what, what that's going to mean in the wintertime. Uh, other places have tried this. Russia tried it in 2012, and they lasted two years before saying, you know what, these long, dark Russian mornings are just too hard to deal with in the winter. And so they switched to permanent standard time after two years.
0: So let's compare and, and, and get close to home here. I know that many states, you know, got rid of daylight saving, and so did the Saskatchewan. So uh, what, what, what is the feedback from those two?
2: Well, so Saskatchewan's an interesting case, um, because they follow Central Standard Time, but they're not actually in the right location for, for Central Time. Uh, so their their dawns are actually a little later than they should be. Uh, their solar noon is a little later, and their dusk is a little later. So they would actually be better described as mountain daylight time, um, even though you know they don't change their clocks. Uh, so they, they miss the, the clock change problem, uh, but they're a little misaligned. Arizona is still on um, on Standard Time, and they, they do just fine, uh, really close to home, of course. Of course, last year, the Yukon decided to do, do away with the clock changes, and they've stayed on, on uh, daylight time. And so in the winter, oddly enough, even though they're so far west of us, uh, they actually follow the same clocks that we do here in Alberta.
1: So on the question that's on the plebiscite, it's asking, do we stay with daylight saving time? And and your thought is then, no, we don't want that. We want to stick with, at this point anyway, continuing to bounce back and forth. Because it, is it just better for our bodies at this point and, and for, our, you know, the brain too?
2: Well, so the clock changes uh, cause acute harm, and and that's not great. But the problem is staying on daylight time, because Alberta actually we're quite a bit uh, west of where we should be. We're misaligned with the time we follow already on standard time. And uh, so that's the better choice would be standard time. But the best of these two bad choices we're presented with is the, the status quo of continuing to change the clocks.
0: So when we talk about the implications and we, you know, talk about circadian rhythms, uh, could we really have any health implications per se? And and, what might that look like if we, you know, if somebody had an adverse effect to to seeing less uh, daylight?
2: So one of the things that we know from just uh, the science and they've actually studied how health and sleep match up with uh, with sunset time. The later the sunsets, and we have really late sunsets here in Alberta, uh, the less sleep you get, and that's because your circadian clock is is linked to the sun, and it tells you to go to bed later because you have a later sunset. But your boss still wants you at, at work uh, at the same time, and so when you have later sunsets, people um, they found they have 19 minutes less sleep a night, which works out to over a hundred hours of less sleep a year. Uh, and they have high rates of diabetes, heart disease and cancer in those cases. So that can sort of really highlight just how bad being misaligned with your day can be for your health.
1: Really important discussion ahead of election day. Thank you so much. Uh, appreciate your time this morning, professor. Thank you. That's professor Michael Antle with the psychology department at the university of Calgary. Made sense to me. Interesting discussion. I mean, and, and that's the thing, you know, when it's a question on a plebiscite, It can be very confusing. So you really need to understand what the question is they're asking. And Dr. Antle seems to think it's actually asking the wrong thing of us.
0: It's interesting because we've, uh, and I'm interested in how things work. We had, uh, we've had Daryl Bricker on from Ipsos many, many times. And I'd like to talk to him about the methodology and, and, and sort of the setup and the questions. And yeah, he mentions time and time again that, you know, the answers are great in getting a response, but that question is super important because does that The know, way it's worded, an right? Yeah. yeah. Or does it take you down one road?
1: Yes. And that's the thing. This is taking you down one road. Gary just texted in, it's so typical of this Kenny government to be out of step with the majority of Albertans by not offering the option to stay on standard daylight time, which obviously makes more sense. I will vote no to staying on daylight saving time. Frankly, I'm voting no on it as well. I, I don't think it's a good idea.
0: I did not know. I thought it was one or the other, A or B. No, it's one. Um, and this, this this text is a little off topic to a certain extent, says, according to Professor, my clock is so screwed up because I get up at 4.30 no matter what at a certain time of year at 3.30, whether I like it or not. Once I wake, mm. I wake. Yeah, everybody, it's such an individual thing, too, yeah. as far as needing that light for you and I. We do not enter the office one day ever uh, with any shred of sunshine. No. So, you know, to a certain extent, we're...
1: It's kind of irrelevant. We're gophers. But I've never really, I mean, I've never really understand the the great giant issue for the majority of us Mm. for switching the clocks back and forth. It doesn't really affect me. Sure, I'm sometimes a little tired on the Monday after, but it's really not a big deal. But, if we are going to switch to one thing or the other, let's make sure it's the right thing for yeah. our bodies, for where we live specifically. And sounds like you know, switching permanently to daylight saving time is not it. He has been the man with the answers since the start of the pandemic. We've been posing your COVID questions to our expert, associate professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Dr. Craig Janney joins us once again. Hi, Dr. Janney.
3: Good
1: morning, guys. Hey, uh, lots of great questions rolling in this morning. So we'll get to it. Uh, this person saying, I often hear fully vaccinated people say, Why do I need to wear a mask around kids? I'm fully vaccinated. So they ask, Does the virus transmit back and forth? What are the consequences to kids between five and 11 years old who aren't vaccinated, obviously?
3: So unfortunately, the virus does transmit back and forth, and not only can there be a breakthrough infection in the adult, but absolutely the kids can get infected. They do have a much, much lower risk of severe disease, but we tragically have had kids in the ICU here in Alberta, and not one or two. We're talking several dozen children. So this is something we do have to be careful of. Likewise, kids can also pass that back on to a different adult. So, you know, somebody can give a child an infection, that child can bring the infection to a grandparent in a, in a long-term care home, something along those lines. Um, so we have to be careful of them, that kids very much get infected and transmit that virus to other people.
0: Okay, the latest news is uh, coming out yesterday late afternoon, I believe people over 75 can now get the booster shot if uh, it's been six months since their last vaccination. This person says, I've had two Pfizer shots in February and March. Is it recommended?
3: So the recommendation now if you're over 75 is at least six months after that second shot and this is really just a, an extra level of safety so there are a, a number of people in that age group whose immunity is still holding up great but there are a, a small number that, that that immunity is now beginning to, to show signs of fading and instead of screening every single person and determining do you have an extra couple months before your immunity fades, the, the simplest, the safest is to say this this age group could benefit from a third shot and And we 've now opened that up here in the province, so this is based on real world data not the not the original uh, uh, limited clinical trials, but after looking at literally administering billions of doses of vaccine over the last year that we see that the older the individual is, the the earlier their immunity may fade, and this is a really simple way to approach that problem.
1: Is there any way it could be harmful, Dr. Janney?
3: We've not seen any evidence of that whatsoever. So a third dose it appears to be completely safe. Um, what we have to be careful of is that you know, younger people right now do not need that third dose, and simply for vaccine distribution and, and rationing, we, we want to make sure that people who have not had a vaccine, whether they're in Canada or outside, get access to those vaccines. So we don't want everybody stampeding when there's no medical need for it. Okay. But in the older individuals, there there is a, a need, and, and this is a great way to to ensure they're protected.
1: Yeah, so we've been certainly hearing about, you know, new outbreaks at long-term care homes. So it is yes. that's that is crucial. Okay. This here's another question my wife is pregnant into her sixth month her family physician told her not to get vaccinated as the effects of the vaccine on fetuses were unknown and not studied well so they've decided this couple not to get vaccinated until after birth but he says my wife has heard rumors she won't be able to get into the hospital or get her regular blood test done if she's not vaccinated
3: so I've, I've not heard any hospital access so hospital access is an essential service uh, there is no requirement to be vaccinated to be seen by a medical professional to have blood work done to to be treated so uh, th- that is not the reason to be vaccinated but we do know that there is an increased risk for pregnant women if they do contract covid and and the recommendations at the national level are to to discuss so this individual may have an underlying condition where uh, their personal vaccination is not recommended, but uh in general it, it is recommended and but do not worry about accessing medical care. Uh we are we are ensuring that even non vaccinated people have equal access to medical care in Alberta.
0: Good. All right, I okay, got kind of a double whammy question for you and this is something we're revisiting, Doctor Janney, because I know people personally and I believe Sue does as well who've had COVID nineteen, who've come mm-hmm. out and said, Well I've had COVID nineteen A I don't need the shot whatsoever. So if you can discuss that. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of the question is, if I've had COVID, do I have to wait a period of time before I do get the shot?
3: So there is a recommendation to be recovered from COVID before considering a shot. So there is a bit of a wait. um, And that's, again, a great question to ask your doctor for each person. uh, You know, the the COVID disease journey can, can be quite different. Do you need a shot? Uh, that's a great question and although you will have protection from recovering which is great news it's the way our immune system works covid's weird in that that natural immunity uh, does a couple things differently than than uh, vaccine induced immunity so the natural immunity fades quicker Um, So it will disappear earlier than your vaccine-induced immunity, which leads to a scenario where you might think you're protected, but you've you've lost it uh, and you've re-exposed yourself to the virus. Uh, But more importantly, natural immunity seems to, for whatever reason, we haven't quite figured it out, uh, not provide coverage against the other variants as well as the vaccine. The vaccine, for some reason, provides excellent coverage against at least all the current variants in Canada, Uh, whereas natural immunity if you're infected by for example the the strain of virus that was circulating last year or infected by the strain of virus uh january to sort of march april the alpha variant that provides poor protection against the delta variant and we are seeing significant delta breakthroughs in in that natural immunity so it's a recommendation both by the us uh, cdc and by health canada to get a a vaccine after you've recovered from a a natural infection simply to boost that, to get that broad coverage against the the variants and ensure that lasts for for many more months than what natural natural immunity would normally last for.
1: Okay, good to know. Uh, Now, we've heard a little bit about therapeutics in the past week or so, so uh, this person wants us to ask you why um, some doctors around the world have had positive results with lessening the effects of the disease caused by COVID, and why are we not exploring more therapeutics, or are we?
3: So we are. And I mean, I know uh, uh, groups here in Calgary that have been going through more than 20 different therapeutics, uh, and we've been doing this throughout the pandemic. We've realized that most of the time uh, we can repurpose other drugs, and we've actually had some success. We've had some success with, for example, uh, steroids, right? They're not... Uh, a be all and cure all, but they absolutely help the treatment of a patient. Um, other doctors. So we've heard all of these, especially sensational uh, social media stories, often amplified, for example, by by a previous president. Um, th- these are uh, studies where individuals have in a non-controlled, non-structured fashion, tried drugs on on people in the hospital and reported they had good outcomes. But when we set up a proper study where we say, okay, 10 people with COVID are going to get the, the treatment, 10 people with the same degree of sickness will not get the treatment, we actually don't see any difference. So those initial studies are often subject to a confirmation bias. You've got a patient who is less sick than the others, so you try a drug, they recover, you claim it was the drug that cured them but they were less sick than the people in the bed beside them. Mm-hmm. So that's the critical nature of these, these proper studies. And what we're identifying is that these things that initially have some excitement simply don't pan out when we do a, a proper study and determine two patients, one with the drug, one without. There, there turns out not to be a difference. But as you said, there's some encouraging news this week for a new therapeutic, and we'll have to wait to see the full data, but you know, it, it is exciting.
0: Dr. Janney, we have to take a break for traffic. Can you hang on for two more minutes? please? course. Me? Good stuff. More from infectious disease specialist Dr. Craig Janney. And a lot of these questions, Dr. Janney, keep coming back. Just like we've had the different waves of the pandemic, we get a lot of the same questions. Now, I'm hoping we can put this to bed. Maybe it's personal bias, but I, I've heard enough about it. Here's the question. It says, why in the heck... Is ivermectin not being used? Mm -hmm. It's worked time after time, even though it's not profitable for big pharma. So why isn't it being used, Dr. Janney? Come on.
3: Because it doesn't work. (laughs) 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 <laughs> yeah, I, I I I understand, and we do see this, and this really is, you know, the the the, the bane of social media. You know, therapies are not prioritized by by the profit they make. Per, perhaps one of the cheapest drugs we have out there are are these steroids that are being used, and they work. So so it's not about the fancy new drug; it's about drugs that work. And ivermectin, simply in controlled trials with people entering the hospital uh, with covid half being put on ivermectin half not they have not worked, including a trial conducted here in Calgary so this is not relying on other people's data. We've tried this early on and we did not have positive results from it
1: but another texter says it's been cured in a province in India just through ivermectin
3: yeah. <laughs> We, we have to ask uh, exactly how the studies were conducted, how were they testing, how they knew people were infected with COVID, how they know people who who died did not have COVID, uh, you know, lots of things. I, I very much trust uh, our medical system and, and the professionals I work with, knowing that they've conducted the trial here and it was not protective. Fair enough. Okay, here. how about this
1: one? Has the vaccine been changed to combat the Delta from the original strain? Does they, have they changed the vaccine as we've been going along?
3: So not yet. Uh, the vaccine that we have still works very well against Delta. Still, you know, 90% protection from, from ICU admission. So great, great news with the current vaccines. Now, that being said, uh, a couple of the companies have submitted new boosters for clinical trial. And those are designed to start with the Delta variant and hopefully protect us from future variants. So using the, the current Delta as its foundation to, to, to broaden our coverage. So we may see that. And I think that that's one reason why we're not in a big rush to give those third shots to everybody if that third shot in, in three or four months uh, is better against new variants you know we'll all be better off
0: okay final question and that is from me coming to you, you we've seen the uh, mandates the school mm-hmm. board mandates when it comes to vaccines mlas in the province the federal mandates we know that contact tracing is coming back to schools is enough being done or would you like to see any more being done to combat the virus at this point, Dr. Jen?
3: Yeah, so the mandates, I think right now we've got arguably the right mix if we had, you know, half to quarter the number of cases in the community. What we're looking at now is the right mix to, to limit viral spread and to keep things under control and, you know, Tough decisions have been made. The problem is, is we are in the worst shape we've ever been, and as a result, you need something extremely strict for a short period of time to get the pressure off the healthcare system. We need to get back to being able to offer people other treatments, other scheduled surgeries, rather than just COVID triage. So you know, the the, the restrictions we have now they're going to work. They are going to plateau and slow viral spread. Will they slow it fast enough to get that pressure off? That's the big question. And do we need something short-term to to break the transmissions, get the hospitalizations down, and then we can start resuming things again?
1: As always, thank you so much for answering our listeners' questions. Appreciate your time.
3: You're welcome, guys.
1: Take care. Have a great day. That's Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. We've seen cyber
0: attacks increase over the past few years, and although attacks on large companies make the news, small businesses are also at risk of cyber attack. Here to help us make sure our data is protected is Jordan Brennan, Vice President, Policy Development, Insurance Bureau of Canada. Good morning to you, Jordan. Good morning, Andy. Thank you for taking the time with us. We appreciate it. How concerned should businesses, I'm talking average and maybe family-run businesses, be about cyber attacks?
4: i would say they should be very concerned uh andy um uh, our our numbers indicate that uh roughly one in five small businesses have already faced a cyber attack uh so that's a large proportion um and then the because of the nature of the attacks themselves they can be extremely costly uh so costly in fact that they they drive a small business uh into insolvency So, so this should be something that is front of mind for for small business owners
1: and what's the best thing to do in terms of protecting yourself? What, what do you think you mean for small business owners, for us at home? What, what do we need to really be cognizant of?
4: Well, well like, like anything, Sue, planning and preparation uh, can't completely eliminate threats, but they can greatly reduce them. So at the top of any um, uh, strategy uh, should be uh, obtaining uh, insurance coverage. You know, Small businesses should, should call their insurance representatives uh, and, and, and uh, to discuss their insurance needs, you know, the particularities of their business, uh, but obtain uh, actual coverage, cyber coverage for their business.
0: You know, Jordan, it's been a tumultuous time over the past uh, 19, almost 20 months. Uh, and a lot of brick-and-mortar stores have moved their businesses online or increased that online component just to, to make a buck and keep things afloat. Has that increased the risk, seeing more of an online presence from a lot of business.
4: Absolutely, um, you know the, the uh, c- cyber is still a relatively new market in Canada. It's relatively young, but what we've seen in the last 18 months of the pandemic is is a fairly significant increase in the number and the severity and the complexity of cyber attacks. So, so as you noted, you know business owners are, have been compelled to, to put the, to migrate more of their business online, and this leaves them exposed, you know, more vulnerable to, to an attack.
1: Can you break down some of the stats that you found for us, Jordan, and just talk about, you know, anything that maybe kind of really piqued your interest or surprised you from the uh, research that came out about cyber attacks during the pandemic?
4: Certainly. Yeah. So I think the most surprising finding for us is that, uh, you know, given the increased threat uh, of cyber attack, we would expect small businesses to adjust uh, and and more of them to uh, seek and obtain cyber coverage. But the survey indicated uh, something different. Um, uh, fewer than half uh, of the uh, businesses polled uh, intended to obtain cyber coverage, have int- intended to obtain cyber coverage. You know, we'd asked the question, how much of your uh, budget is going to be allocated to cybersecurity in, in the coming year? And roughly half said none. Uh, and that was up from, from one third in uh, 2019. So, so the business response uh, there's a mismatch then between the business response to the increasing threat and their actual preventive measures. So, so that's one of the most striking findings. Uh, but as I said, you know, one in five businesses have already experienced a cyber attack, and depending on the size of the business, again, these are extreme. These can be extremely costly events. You know, you you had flagged earlier in your in your in your piece here that that you know it's the large businesses that attract the the bulk of media attention because of you know the size of the attack or how much damage is inflicted, but but many small businesses you know they operate on a shoestring budget They, they 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 struggle to break even let alone turn a profit so. So, um, you know, one of the, the, the pieces of information from the survey was that uh, 40% of uh, small businesses who encounter an attack, experience an attack, will have to pay over $100,000 um, in damages wow. associated with that. And that can stink the small business, you know, obviously. So that, that's something else to, to keep in mind.
0: Also, I guess, uh, you know, personally, aside, maybe I'm not a business owner, but our personal data I guess we all have a a bit of a personal responsibility when it comes to protecting our, you know, uh, online presence.
4: Oh, absolutely. And and so, you know, over and above, you know, and routing back to an earlier question, over and above the um, obtaining cyber coverage, you know, small business owners should want to inculcate a a culture of cyber vigilance and put in place protocols to protect themselves, especially on the data side. So so things like enforcing multi-factor authentication on their network you know, so that's when you go to log into to your device, you have to then go to your, say, uh, mobile phone to, to get a password to let you back in to confirm your credentials. Email security, things like attachment scanning and, and external sender barriers, uh, uh, banners, they alert um, staff, uh, you know, uh, to a pending threat. Uh, and then, you know, running regular data backups uh, is important as well. So, so companies should be putting these things in place just to reduce the threat of an attack.
1: Great reminders, Jordan. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time.
4: My pleasure, Stu. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Jordan Brennan, Vice President, Policy Development with the Insurance Bureau of Canada. COVID
0: has been detrimental to our mental health and especially hard on teens and young adults. The YMCA has launched a new program to help young people better cope with stress and anxiety. Here to tell us more about the program is Kaya Kerr, General Manager of YMCA Calgary. Good morning to you, Kaya
5: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. So uh, tell us, what is this program? What does it offer and, and how can people access it?
5: Yeah. So the Why Mind is a seven-week free uh, program. It's an early in- intervention uh, psychoeducational program designed to help teens and young adults uh, develop some skills for coping with stress and anxiety. Um Essentially, it is for people aged 13 to 18 or 18 to 30, and uh, throughout the program, they're going to learn ways of dealing with some of the really difficult thoughts and emotions that might come up when things get overwhelming. So, they'll come out with a better understanding of why their body and their minds uh, respond the way that they do when things get stressful and learn some strategies for dealing with those uh, difficult sensations in the moment.
1: Kaya, I'm maybe there's no answer to this or maybe the answer is they just all are. How do you know if your teen is suffering from stress and anxiety? I mean, it's just been such a tough year for everybody, especially kids.
5: Yeah, um, for sure. So so anxiety can show up for people in a variety of different ways, and it's quite normal. We all experience stress and anxiety at different points in our lives. Um, but sometimes if... You're noticing things like uh, increased anger or frustration or perhaps withdrawing from activities or people that normally they would have been interested in. Um, Things like having trouble getting to sleep at night or just excessive worrying or troubling thoughts uh, or looping thinking that they just can't seem to get out of. These are some indications that uh, your teen or yourself might be struggling with with. Uh, increased stress and anxiety. And it may be time to to start to address that before it gets out of hand.
0: Yeah, I think that everybody's familiar with the Y in Calgary. So I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. do you have to be a YMC member to access uh, this particular program?
5: You do not have to be a YMC Mm -hmm. member. The program is open to everybody who falls within the age guidelines. And uh, all you have to do is go to our website. You can sign up for a free uh, information and intake session uh, where we'll present some more information about the program and determine if the program is going to be the right fit for you. Uh, And then after going to the intake, we will uh, work to see which program location is going to work best for you. We do have in-person program offerings uh, at several of our YMC locations, as well as a virtual option for folks uh who are not able
1: to attend in person and you do have lots of dates available for people so nobody will miss out that's the great thing about this thank you so much really important topic that we have to deal with especially coming out of this pandemic right thanks so much kaya absolutely you're very welcome thanks great. for having me thank you for joining us kaya Kerr, is a general manager of the ymca calgary and you can go online ymcacalgary.org